0: successes regrets and looking ahead governor bill haslam reflects on his own administration and his potential successor this week on grand divisions it's the week of july 23rd i'm dave boucher investigative reporter and I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. The governor sat down with us recently at the state house uh, for a wide-ranging interview. Uh, we, we talked to him uh, about his perspective from his his political perch, about where the the GOP uh, race is headed. But we also talked to him a lot about his his policy successes, like uh, Tennessee Promise, very popular education program, and some of the failures, some of the struggles they had around the, the Department of Children's Services around T and ready standardized testing, and just where he sees um, the next governor needing to go in order to, to fix some of those problems.
1: But first, quick primer on Haslam if you're unfamiliar with him. He is the 49th governor of Tennessee. Uh, he's a former Knoxville mayor, uh, ran in 2010 in a heated uh, primary um, against a couple of candidates, including Lieutenant Governor Ron Ramsey. Um, he also ran in, in 2014, handily won re election. This year or at late last year, decided to not run for the U.S. Senate seat held by Senator Bob Corker, who announced his resignation. So. Right Right now, the future for Haslam is unknown. Uh, I'm sure in the coming weeks, months, and days, he will uh, decide what to do. All right, so let's take a listen to the interview with the governor. Governor, thanks for coming on our podcast. Uh, welcome to Grand Divisions.
2: I'm glad to be uh, have a chance to be on the show. I'm, I'm actually a listener as well. I Probably a little bit inordinately interested in Tennessee politics, but I have I've enjoyed it. I've loved hearing uh, hearing your guys' opinions, and as somebody who feels like the news is sometimes you can't capture capture it all in a in a paragraph, I think it's, it's a great idea to have an ability for people to talk through the issues.
1: Well, well, as such, uh, you know, right off the bat, let's, let's get started. You're watching the, the governor's race, you know, (laughs) to succeed you. Do you have any wistfulness? Do you have any desire
2: to be back out there on the campaign trail? I I act zero. Uh, (laughs) You know, running for office is really hard and I don't, I'm not certain until you've done it that people have an appreciation for just how personally difficult it is. I mean, you're, you're asking people for help, people are giving you money, you're sticking your neck out there on the line, opponents are saying things about you. It is it's one of the more personally difficult journeys that I think somebody can go on. So I as you all know, I've loved this job, but there's there's not much about campaigning that I look at and say, Dang, I wish I was <laughs> out there right now. <laughs>
0: So, so how would you, when you look at this campaign, how do you think it compares to your first campaign when you were, um, you know, in, in your own heated Republican primary, how does, how does this sort of atmosphere compare?
2: Well, some of it is, there's definitely some similarities. Um, then, I mean, now this is a world dominated in a Republican primary about, you know, about immigration and about where you stand on the president. Um, then that was the heyday of the tea party, as you all remember. And so it was all about tea party type issues, um, which, are, which were related, but a little, little different. It's also different in that that was Obama's first midterm. Uh, this is Trump's first midterm, very different mm-hmm. national environments. Uh, and also the reality that, you know, once you get to the general election, it's a different environment now than it was then. I mean, eight years ago, it was going to be hard for a Democrat to win in Tennessee. It just was, given the, the, the environment. Um, I don't think that's impossible. So, again, I think the Republicans have the advantage. You look at generic ballots in Tennessee, where you know we're ahead uh, probably by ten points or so. But it's 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 a lot more realistic for a Democrat now than it was eight years ago. Well,
1: and it certainly helps having Bredesen on the ticket as a uh, you know running for the U.S. Senate. It helps the governor's well, candidate. Well, I
2: and, think it does in two ways. I mean, obviously, credible candidate um, on the Democrat ballot. Number two, there will be. You all have written and talked a lot about the amount of money that will be spent. You need to look at that two ways, the amount of money raised and spent by the candidates and then all of the outside money, mm-hmm. which I think will dwarf the candidates' uh, money that they raise.
1: Are you surprised at how expensive it's become to run for office, at least these two higher offices? You know, it's
2: kind of interesting. So, uh, you know, I'm chairing the Republican Governor Association. We have 36 governor's races, so I sort of have the benefit of looking all across the country and it's we have, we're a little bit of an anomaly in Tennessee. So of the 36 governor's races, um, Tennessee right now has the third highest in expenditures. You have Illinois, where you have two billionaires, Pritzker and Rauner, battling each other. Huge. Which
1: is, I think, the most expensive race in history. I think in the
2: history of the world, yeah. Yeah, other than the national election. Yeah. Um, and then you have Florida, which has you know 11 media markets, very competitive uh, primaries on the Republican and Democrat side. And then Tennessee, which is kind of, I mean, we're not, we shouldn't be that high. So That's shocking. It is a little shocking, and it's a, you know, it's a little function of the race and who all's in it, et cetera. But it, I think uh, people look at it and say, well, this must be the way all elections are, and they're, they're not. I mean, there are a lot of elections that look like they did 10, 12 years ago across the country.
0: Why do you think none of the Republicans— despite spending that money and and campaigning, some of them for a long time, have been able to really kind of um, run away with the race. So really, why hasn't one person really emerged as like the favorite? So so I think
2: the, you know, the big question is that, and then why are there still so many undecideds? Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know the answer. I mean, I've asked that question about why every poll I've seen recently shows there's about 30 percent Still undecided now that you know, and we're five days into early voting, which is extraordinary. I, I, a couple theories. Um, number one, I do think the world has changed from eight years ago in the sense that everything has become nationalized. People are getting their news from Fox or CNN or MSNBC, and so they think immigration really is the biggest issue in the governor's race, whereas we know it's it's not or it shouldn't be. Um, so I think there's a lack of a, there's a lot less focus on state and local government period than there was So I think some of that's just people their voters. They're, they're You know they, they voted in four out of the last four elections They're going to vote, but they're just not thinking as much about state and local elections So I think that's one number two, you know on the Republican side we have a you know We have an abundance of legitimate good candidates, you know regardless of who you're for you got to say those are four legitimate qualified candidates for governor and so I think that's making it a little more difficult.
1: You recently penned a, an op-ed or a, a letter essentially to your eventual successor right. where you said, you know, a lot of things you've been campaigning right. on aren't necessarily going to be the things you work on immediately as governor. What's going to be the most important
2: issue for the next governor to, to address? Well, I, I, two or three things come to mind. For any governor, how you run care is a big deal. Okay, we forget, but... You know, we we had 10 10-care 10 directors in the first 10 years of this state's experience with 10-care. Tumultuous. Right. Uh, I mean, just. hard, right? And then, then we had one, Darren Gordon, for 10 years, and then Wendy has done it for the last three. Who runs 10-care is a big deal because there's so much money and there's so much fluctuation and it can affect your budget one way or another. And it's one of those things, everybody wants to keep the cost of government under control, but the calls you get from legislators are are, why did you turn down... That constituent of mine for coverage, why are we not paying this provider what we used to pay them, et cetera so you're in the middle of all that that's one uh, just uh, offhand do you
1: remember how much of the state budget is yeah attentive?
2: it's it's really close to being um, we're in the the mid to high twenties okay. in terms of the percentage of the budget okay. now a lot of that's federal money, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still a, you know it's still a huge chunk of the budget, so you're in the I'm offhand twelve to thirteen billion dollar yeah. range. Um, that's one. Number two, you know, you all are familiar with a lot of the issues we've had around education. I came into a situation where Tennessee had just completed a race to the top. We'd made some big changes, some policy changes on the prior administration. We knew our job was going to be to stand in the door when there was pushback. So the big changes around higher standards, an assessment tied to those standards, and evaluations, the teachers' evaluations being uh, that the assessments and the results of that were part of the evaluations we knew there would be pushback our job was to stand in the door which we have done but that won't stop there will be continued pressure obviously the challenges we've had around T and ready have exacerbated that pressure and will make it harder
0: well yeah and you mentioned that I mean as you said you came in and and focused a lot on both higher education right. and on uh, accountability right. in, in k-12 it's right. been a lot of focus on that and yet for whatever reason, the state has spent millions of dollars on this standardized test that has seemingly not bedeviled other states to the same degree that it has really hamstrung yes. Tennessee. How does that
2: happen? So, so there's two or three reasons. One, you've got to have to go back to how did we get with this test? So we had uh, a national vendor, the, the park test um, uh, administered by Pearson, uh, nationally known, tested, tried. We had, ex- we had done all the work back in all the the furor over Common Core, the legislature said we don't want to use them. We don't want to use anything that's national nature. We don't want to use Pearson. We think they're part of this big you know, national conspiracy that involves Common Core, et cetera. So let's not do that. Let's go out for a bid, Um, and we did that. Unfortunately, then due to the state's purchasing requirements. We at the top three folks, none of them really were of the size and experience where they had done something to this. So that's one. Number two, one of the reasons there hadn't been so much pressure is a lot of states don't do what we do where they tie the teacher's evaluations to the assessments. So it is more high stakes in nature, if you will. Once you have that, you have a lot more people who are genuinely invested in that process, and that raises the energy and the interest level, if you will.
0: And just potentially maybe a higher level of scrutiny coming from teachers, organizations, well, or no, other people not, who have. Not
2: potentially there is. I mean, so, you know, my fear when, I mean, like I said, uh, when that, when we had the tea and ready, you know, issues back this spring, I mean, I had a pit in my stomach because I do think it's important. I'm one of the ones that thinks our progress is due to a lot of things. But one of those is evaluations tied to assessments. And that wasn't a Republican idea, by the way. That was President Obama's idea and then the Republicans came in and said hey that's what we believe too but that's hard there's a lot of pushback and there will continue to be pushback and so every time we have a we have a problem people go aha see there that's why we can't do it so I your, think that's a problem
1: was your fear that they they would throw the baby out with the you bath got water? it okay. uh, I mean, it
2: still is my fear hmm. and you know the, the other thing that's different as you all know is you you know You know, 40 years ago when I worked uh, as an intern in the United States Senate, I did constituent services. I answered letters, you know, and they sent in letters and sent them back. And, you know, um, now folks are out there on the floor and they're getting messages Mm -hmm. on their Facebook and everywhere else. And so all of a sudden they're going, I got 40 messages from teachers. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Well, you know, those those teachers might be, you know, they're conveying what they really believe, but they have a vested stake in it as well.
1: One of the issues that uh, the gubernatorial candidates have been talking about this this year has been the opioid crisis, the importance of addressing that. Your administration this year put $30 million towards that. Uh, Some folks were critical of that, saying it's a drop in the bucket. This is not a new issue to Tennessee. We've dealt with this for for several years now, and it's only gotten worse, seemingly. Has your administration dropped the ball on this issue?
2: Well, I don't. I don't think I I don't think we have. Um, obviously I'm I'm biased, but I think we've done two or three things. It it's it, it really was about um I think two or three things. Cutting off the supply, which we've made a couple of efforts uh, and we would have even gotten stronger, but again the lobbying effort against us TMA and others didn't want us to go as strong as what we initially mm-hmm. proposed. So we still think what we ended up with is very helpful and will make a difference. I hear people say all the time like man, I just you know had surgery and I just got five days worth of, of opiates. Uh, what, what's the deal? Um, so we, we've we made a real effort to change, and our MMUs prescribed, mm-hmm. the morphine milligram equivalence, is dramatically down almost as much as any other state. We're putting more money toward law enforcement and then more money toward treatment. Could we be spending more money on treatment? Sure. Um, and I think that'll be something for the next General Assembly to look at and say is this initial investment we've made is it making a difference?
0: When you talk about looking at the next general assembly with a new administration, you referenced earlier how the general assembly might have thought there was a conspiracy around educational testing. Can you just talk about the difficulties of a new governor coming in, working with a new house speaker and yeah. a potentially very new Republican caucus. How, what are what are the challenges there?
2: In gov- and being governor, there's a learning curve, just like there's anything else. I don't care. I and mean, everybody says, "Well, I'm I'm ready day one," you know, <laughs> and. Um, you know, I said, hey, I've been a mayor. I know what that's like. So that being a mayor helped me. Yeah, I mean, it helped me a ton in knowing how to organize and run the government. If you've been in the legislature, you say, I know exactly how that works. But it's still really different being the governor. I mean, you know, legislature sees one piece of state government, but, you know, we got 40,000 employees and $37 billion operating entity out there. You know, there's just, it's a vast enterprise. And, so there's a learning curve on that side, but there's definitely a learning curve on the legislative side. And, you know, I went from a world where I had nine city council members to where I, who elected on a nonpartisan basis to 132 very partisanly elected <laughs> uh, members of the legislature. So there is a learning there. I, I think your point's a good one. You're going to have a new governor next year, uh, a new speaker in the House, a new majority leader in the Senate. You can I can keep going on with positions pro- with potentially as many as— you know, as much as 25 to 30 percent of leadership of the membership knew. That's that's a big deal, and one of my fears is this: that there's not a appreciation for kind of how we got here. So, you know, we have a really good budget situation, but it's the result of a lot of people—not just us, but even before we got here, people making hard decisions. And you're going to have a whole lot of the general assembly that's never been here during an economic downturn when things get really
1: tough. I mean, you're not going to have Charles Sargent,
2: who has seen some of that, uh, uh, Craig Fitzhugh, who has seen some of yeah, that, that uh, say,
1: don't do exactly what you're trying there, to do.
2: There are a lot of people, and so I think you, you saw that a little bit. You're have the you still going to have the Randy McNally's and Bo Watson's sure. and others in the Senate who have been that, but that really is, I mean, everyone, listen, when you come in here, everybody wants to cut taxes, sure. okay? But everybody also wants to pay teachers more, provide more mental health care treatment, Uh, cover these providers who say they're not being treated fair in tend care and on and on. Um, And that's where the challenge is. And until you've sat in this seat and had to balance those needs, A, and then B, hopefully you've had to do it during a hard time as well, it looks a little easier than it is.
1: Take us through your decision-making process when you're facing a crucial bill or a decision. Who do you consult? Is it you know a religious leader? Is it is it Chrissy, your wife? Yeah. Is it um, you know political folks? Uh, who do you rely on, and who do you think the next governor? Could so so rely
2: on? it's a little what I said in the letter that you guys published. Uh, Why well, I said so, so? It's so important to hire great people. Um, so I mean, your first line of of influence and consultation is with your own staff uh, because they're in the middle they understand the whole ramifications because it's it's rarely just a philosophical issue I mean it's a philosophical issue and a political issue and a practical issue and so hopefully you might have the commissioner of that department that's real involved you have your senior team that's involved and then I tended to reach out to other people who had been in these shoes before to help us
0: Okay. You, you mentioned the importance of, of commissioners. We, we put out an ask to Grand Division listeners to, to, to ask us some questions yeah. for you that might Good. be of interest. Uh, we got a got a few questions specifically about the Department of Children's Services. I know that you faced, your administration has faced a lot of questions about DCS right. and the operation of DCS. Uh, a federal court just decided that uh, federal oversight could be removed from the department after a long time. And yet I still get calls and a lot of our reporters get calls all the time about somebody's individual situation where they're having a really challenging Um, time with the department. Is that just what's going to, is that the, the unfortunate normal of a department like that? Or, or how can the state sort of deal with situations where it's, it's highly charged involves children's lives. And there've been, there's been a ton of scrutiny with this. And we're hearing from people that say this department just hasn't gotten better.
2: Well, I, I would challenge that that this hasn't gotten better and we have, you know, a federal ruling saying that we have and that we actually have a, a model uh, children's service department. Having said all that, everything you just said is right. You're dealing with children. These are children in a, in difficult situations to begin with uh, and it, there's a lot of personal passion involved. So take this, the issue, we have a frontline DCS caseworker who's going into a home trying to decide to make one of the most difficult decisions a state can make are we gonna take that child away from his or her parents? Okay, that, that's about as hard of a decision you can make and you can say, well, you can listen to either side of the story and say, the child's in danger, you didn't get them out of there fast enough, or what are you doing, uh, You know, cutting off that parent's rights, taking their children from them, how dare you, the state, do that? And you can go listen to passionate people, in the very same case, argue, you all should have taken that child a month ago to, what are you doing here? Uh, and make great cases. It's really difficult work. The key is to have people with huge hearts and great experience and a lot of wisdom. Uh, But I think that's always going to be an area where you're going to hear some complaints just because of the nature and the difficulty of what they do.
0: We heard after um, Jim Henry, the the commissioner, came in, a lot of positive feedback from, from his leadership Can you uh, talk about the importance of finding the right commissioner when you're governor and when you start on that decision-making process? Like, should the candidates be thinking now about, like, who they want to run certain departments? I would certainly be – you know, you don't have the luxury now of of
2: focusing on that, but I would definitely be collecting information. So, like, our Commissioner of Commerce and Insurance, Julie McPeak, who's, I think, done a great job in very difficult changing insurance world with Affordable Care Act and everything else – uh, I met when I was campaigning and went to her law firm and found out she had had that same job in Kentucky and then she'd moved to Tennessee and she started asking me all these questions. I had no idea. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to begin to answer your so question. So you
1: get into office and you
2: remember that And I wrote down Julie's name and oh. did that. There's also people I have kn- knew all along. Having said that, the other thing I would say is this. We now have, and I don't know the exact number, of our 23 commissioners, I think 10 of them were people who were here when we got here. They were great long-term employees. Wendy Long, who's running Care, was there. Tony Parker, who's our commissioner of corrections, started out uh, working in a prison in West Tennessee, literally, and worked his way as a guard and worked his way up to be commissioner. The problem is when you're the outside person, you don't really know who those people are. But, you know, Bonnie, uh, who's running DCS now, uh, Marie Williams at, uh, at Substance Abuse and Mental Health. I mean, I can go on. There are some good folks here, that aren't involved in the political process. They're, they're in our administration, but they aren't Haslam people, if you will.
0: Plenty more to come from the governor. We have a lightning round of questions where we touch on everything from his own political future, what he sees Bob Corker and Lamar Alexander doing, how he thinks Trump will fare in the 2020 election, how he thinks the volunteers will fare this year in the fall. Uh, but first, our colleague, Jordan Bowie, Brings you his weekly fact and fact check.
3: Last week, we looked at early voting. This week, we look at attack ads, especially among the same party. The 11th commandment of politics, an oft repeated phrase attributed to President Ronald Reagan. The commandment, as it is called, says, quote, Thou shalt not speak ill of any fellow Republican. While Reagan did utter these words during his 1966 campaign for California governor, Reagan didn't actually coin the phrase. Instead, Then-California Republican Party Chairman Gaylord Parkinson came up with the phrase as an idea to keep candidates from the party from attacking one another. Reagan started mentioning the commandment, and it worked. That's our fact for this episode. Now we segue into our fact check. It doesn't appear Tennessee Republican gubernatorial candidates are following this commandment. Just this past week, political attack ads have gone on the air, and we've checked them out. Randy Boyd aired an ad attacking Diane Black, calling her a 20-year politician whose net worth increased more than $40 million while in office. We found these numbers to be true, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, but not that Black raised the state's taxes more than $160 million, which the ad suggests. Black aired an attack ad of her own against Bill Lee, questioning whether he'd be voting in the Democratic primary, noting that Lee has donated to Carl Dean, Phil Bredesen, and Megan Barry. But we've also found that Black herself previously pulled Democratic ballots in 1996. Boyd also attacked Lee, saying he was the state president of a group that lobbied for amnesty for undocumented immigrants and did not support Donald Trump in 2016. But the associated builders and contractors, where Lee served as president in 1999, did not issue statements on immigration reform until later. And neither Boyd nor Lee has given money to Trump's campaign, according to federal campaign records. That's our fact and fact check for this week. Check back on our next episode for another segment.
0: All right, now let's get back to our interview with Governor Haslam.
1: Looking back on, on your history in the office, uh, is there a what's your biggest regret? And second question, is there a bill that became law without your signature that you would have gone the other way and wish you had a second chance you would have? Been yeah,
2: there? so there's a lot of regret. I mean, You don't make this many decisions and not think, oh, I wish I would have done this differently. Sometimes my regrets were situations where I didn't step in. They were more management situations where I said, well, the governor doesn't need to go be the heavy hand in that, and I didn't. Um, You asked mainly about bills, but I feel like there's way more decisions outside the legislative process. There are things where I thought, well, I don't want to be that governor that's jumping in and making every decision. Some of my biggest regrets are things that i there were sins of omission not commission okay so one number two i mean obviously we really wanted to work out sure tennessee um and would have I, I still think our plan was a good plan that would have saved the state money covered people been the right thing to do um and would have long-term been good for the country too because i think we would put some models in place for how to make it more the user had a had a bigger stake in the game if you will um then I mean, those are some things that come to mind, and some of the things I didn't sign. Sometimes, I mean, I'll give you an example. The the one this year we didn't sign that got a lot of attention was um, the around, sanctuary cities bill. Yeah, the sanctuary cities bill. And to be honest with you, I just didn't see any profit in continuing the discussion. So if you veto it, you've got a decent chance to let I mean, it passed overwhelmingly. They come back, or it becomes the primary topic in the governor's race. And it's and the primary topic when they come back next which year, which it kind
1: of still has become a It still a big is, topic. but it
2: would have been an even bigger one, I okay. think. And so I honestly thought it's just we don't have an issue. I mean, we don't have it's against the law to have sanctuary cities. We we don't have them. Uh, on the other hand, so if you'd vetoed done that, if you'd assigned it, you would have said, yeah, I think we have a problem. So it's it's an inelegant solution not to sign a bill. We only did it a handful of times, but in this case, it felt like the right one.
1: You mentioned ensure Tennessee is a, a significant regret, right. but. Um, do you hope the next governor expands under the well,
2: Affordable Care Act? Well, you know, you're down event? now to where there's only 11 or 12 states that haven't done it. And let me tell you, I, I don't. I get the whole I don't like the Obamacare Affordable Care Act. There are a lot of mistakes. I mean, I think they gave in on controlling some of the costs when they did the expansion. There were a lot of big mistakes that I think were, are not good for the country. But I think going forward, you're down, like I said, you're down to 10, 11, 12 states that haven't. At some point in time, we're going to say can we put the right cost controls in there, whether it be everything from work requirements to some sort of user engagement um, to where we come out ahead um, having expanded? And at some point in time, I think those states that haven't looked around saying, well, we're all, all 50 states are paying for it and 40 states are getting the benefit.
0: <laughs> when, when there are potentially hundreds of thousands of people in Tennessee who could get some sort of coverage through expanding insurance, why are the Republicans running for governor talking about, to various degrees, protecting the unborn, ensuring your right to have a gun under the Second Amendment, and Sanctuary immigration. Sanctuary yeah. is building a wall. Yeah,
2: so I, I think, um, I mean, the, the the blunt answer is that's what the people voting in the primaries care about, again, because they're getting their most of their news on a national basis. Do you not
0: and, think that that's playing to to some degree to the, the lowest common denominator in the Republican well, Party, though? There have to be people that don't care about those issues who we're voting to. Well, I, th- I think too. there is, and
2: I think, in the end, I think part of our job is to say, Here's the things that do matter here, and here's the things that the Governor can do something about, so that 's a little bit why i 've kind of kept trying to make those noises and again i don't I don 't blame you know you all as local media unfortunately it 's just people they their thinking is so nationalized in scope now, and I talk to people like friends of mine okay, and there'll be something big going on in the state, and they 'll be clueless about it. Hmm. Because that's just not what they're watching news. So I've gotten in the habit of when I, whenever we're with friends, saying, "Where do you get your news from?" And they're getting it off their phone or off their, you know, off their cable, and that's that's not good for us. Not, I mean, for us as a people.
1: You've been critical of the president Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a future in his Republican Party?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the question is, you know, uh, I think the Repo- I think the Republican Party principles are way bigger than any one person. And I mean, there are a lot of things that, that the president has done that I think are good. I think the tax reform plan was a good plan. I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing, you know, 4% economic growth, which, by the way, solves a whole lot of problems in our country. You know, there's some things, like I said, I, have, I don't like the tariffs uh, that are gone in there. There's some things I don't like, but there are some policies. I will say one other thing that they've been good about, and I think even the Democrat governors would say this, as an administration, they're much more responsive to the state's needs than what we saw out of the Obama administration. The Obama administration was kind of like, thanks for your opinion, we'll let you know if we agree. And these folks really are like, well, what do the states want to do? And that, that's been a refreshing change.
0: Do you think, looking ahead to the general election, that you will unequivocally both vote for and either endorse or campaign for the Republican in the U.S. Senate race and in the governor's race?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've already, you know, first of all, in the governor's race, I'm chairing the Republican Governor Association, so I'm one of my jobs is to help 36 uh, governors get elected across the country. So that's a stated good job of mine. And then I've said, you know, I'm going to support and help Marsha. I've done an event for, her and I think I'm, we're going to do some other things as well.
1: We, we saw that, that Senator Corker said that he would not campaign against yeah. Bredesen. I mean, I, I found this the other day, you writing an op-ed in the Tennessean with Bredesen, yeah. arguing uh, for uh, the judicial selection amendment. Uh, will you? I mean, will you not campaign against them like yeah. Corker is saying? Well, so
2: or? I mean, let me say two other things. Governor Bredesen has been great uh, to us. I mean, from when we came in, in terms of being helpful, he and I were partners. He was the the co-chair of this amendment too. He's helped us on the new state museum. I call him. I still call him about stuff just because there's not many people you can call to say, "How'd you handle this one? How did you handle pardons at the end of your administration? Things like that." Mm-hmm. Okay. That being said, I mean, he campaigned against me when I ran. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean that, you know, what's good. For, I don't mean that an eye for an eye away. I just mean that's just kind of how the process works. The nature works. of politics. That's yeah. how it works. And so, you know, I mean, he didn't, when when I was running against Mike McCorder, he had several events for Mike McCorder. That was his job as the Democratic governor of the state of Tennessee.
0: Since you brought it up really quickly, how, how do you plan to handle pardons at the end of your administration?
2: Well, we're, we're we're looking through that. So, you know, we have we have those that have come up to us through the the pardon and parole board that have been kind of waiting on action, and then you have the others that come directly to us, and we're doing our best to filter through it. I, I'd say, you know, we haven't done any so far. We will definitely do some in the next six months. I, I, w- I don't think you'll you'll see a flood, but I don't think it'll be two or three either. So I think we'll take a moderate approach to it. And those folks that, it, that A, it feels like a pardon is appropriate, and B, it, it makes a difference. Like I said, a lot of people have something on their re- their record they want cleared off, but it, it's not... They just want that. It won't necessarily, they can't get a different, won't, we won't be getting a different job or something. We'll try to do those things whose life has been restricted because of it.
1: The August primary is right around the corner. How do candidates move and transition from running in a primary and then going to
2: the yeah. general? So, What's I mean, that pivot like? What, one of the things I've, all, I've always been a, a, a believer in is you have to be both a candidate and as a party um, focused on people who can win two elections. Winning one election doesn't do you any good. Mm-hmm. And so I try to do that as a candidate, and I've tried to say that to the Republicans as well. I mean, we have some, like I said, chairing Republican governors. I, get, I see these polls all the time, and I see what happens. We have some people who are ahead in the poll in the primary, but they they won't do as well in the general because we're polling the general already as now what, uh, now as well. So I do would remind people that said you have to win both elections. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we're going to move on to rapid questions. Sure. These are a little more fun or interesting, but, Deal. <laughs> um, uh, first off the bat, do you wish you could run for a third term here for governor?
2: It's funny. Somebody, we were at dinner with some friends last night and they asked me that I have, I really do love this job and I can't tell how much I'll miss it, but I believe in term limits. I really do. I think eight years is the right amount for an executive position. Uh, I think there's a season for everything and I sort of think, you know, the, the big things you can get done you've probably done them. I, I do, but I, I'm also well aware that next year some issue will come up that I have a strong opinion about and I'll say, well, you know, you're one of 6.6 million, get in line <laughs> <laughs> and I'll miss having the chance to influence it. Will you run for higher office again? I don't know. I, I don't, uh, you know, like I said, I've loved this and I, I'd kind of be sad if I don't ever have another public service role, but as I, you know, talked about when I decided not to run for Senate at this point in time, it's hard to get excited about running about going to Washington. Uh, I don't have the same feel about it. But you know, heck, I never thought I'd run for governor. So,
1: <laughs> do you see yourself returning to your family's business after? You no, know? I won't
2: do that. I, I'm, I'm not certain what I will do. I won't do that. Um, you know, I've had some people have reached out about different ideas. I really, I really don't know what. I'd, and I, we've been kind of intentional, like keep your head down, focus on this. When it's over, we'll take a couple of months break and breather and figure out what's next.
1: Uh, With so much turnover in the state legislature, do you see Republicans potentially losing any seats in either the House or the Senate?
2: You know, it's it's logical that we would. Again, in in midterms, you know, when your party's in the White House, you lose seats. So nationally, during the eight years of Obama, Republicans gained nine hundred and eighty-six legislative seats. So average of twenty per state. So, what happened in Tennessee was an anomaly, so it's logical to think that that we could lose some because we're in the White House, and that 's how life works i don't when I look out there and look at the races i don 't see a whole lot of that happening in tennessee could Could the Dems pick up you know two or three seats they could if we don't run smart races and elect the right people?
1: What does Senator Lamar Alexander do in 2020 Does he run for reelection or? I
2: honestly don't know We are as you know we've been friends for a long time, and i've been a Taking advice of his counsel and wisdom, I honestly don't know, and I don't know if he knows that, and I haven't asked him that.
0: Uh, similar vein, what do you think Senator Bob Corker does next? Have you have you heard anything from him?
2: Yeah, I, I, Bob and I have talked a little, bit, so I think Bob's a little like I am. I'm gonna got a lot on my plate. We'll finish that up. You know, he's had I know he's had a lot of folks interested and they have asked him, "Hey, would you come be a part of this or that?" I don't I don't think Bob knows that. I don't think he's like hiding something from everybody. I don't think he's decided yet. <laughs>
0: Does President Trump run again in 2020? And if he does, does he win?
2: Uh, I think yes is the answer to the first question. He runs again. Uh, In terms of whether he wins, you're talking to somebody that, you know, when he first rode down the escalator said, well, he won't ever actually really run. And then he won't, the Republicans won't nominate him and then Hillary will win. So you can take my prognostication for what it's, for my historical record, which is about zero. I think it'll be, I mean, right now you might look and say, well, I don't, you know, gosh, she's upside down is, is, you know, faves, unfaves. It's like 44, 52. Um, but I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't count him out. Listen, we have a divided country period and it's even, and
0: it'll be, it'll be just like last time close. Should the United States build a wall along the Southern border?
2: You know, I honestly don't know enough to answer that. I, I, I'm, I don't know enough to say, is that the practical answer? We do have to do something. I'm one of those that thinks we should have an immigration policy that allows people to legally immigrate here. That I think we've been, this idea that we don't want any more immigrants is a bad idea. But I also think we have to have something that makes certain that the people who come in are legal. I don't know enough to know, is the wall the right idea, is there some sort of, other type of surveillance that works better. I don't know. Last two
0: questions. They're very difficult. <laughs> Under Coach Pruitt, can the Vols win ten games this season? <laughs> this season, ten would be a stretch.
2: Uh, I think. I think they'll get there, but uh, I, ten would be a stretch.
0: Uh, what about your brother's team, the Cleveland Browns? Do they win any games? This <laughs> they year? will. Uh,
2: uh, yeah. Okay. I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I don't. I'm not. Uh, involved up there at all, but my sense is they have a whole lot better team than they've had in the past. All right. Well, one, one game anybody. would be good, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's progress. I think it'll be multiple. We'll <laughs> see.
0: Governor Haslam, thank you so much for joining us. Is, is there anything else, that uh, a parting thought, or anything else that you want to uh, leave our listeners with? No, thanks. Right. I mean,
2: actually, you know, I, t- two things. One, uh, I, I mean when I say I've loved this job, it's in this state is a great place. Second, I, I've told you all this, it's really important what you all do. It's important that you all do it well and you do it fairly because – uh, it concerns me that fewer and fewer people are paying attention to what happens on the local and state level, and that that's a mistake.
1: We hope that this is not the last time we have you on this podcast, so thank uh, you for coming on.
0: Love to do it. Thanks. I don't know about you, Joel, but I thought the governor sounded a little more convinced about the Vols not winning 10 <laughs> games than the Browns winning any games. That's just what it sounded like <laughs> to me. I'm going to
1: let the listeners decide. <laughs> that's fair.
0: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, what should listeners be on the lookout for uh, this week?
1: Well, we've got uh, obviously the end of early voting uh, ends on July 28th. So that's coming up. Uh, we've also got the final campaign finance numbers. So this has already become the, the most expensive election in state history. At least the governor's race has. Uh, we will have the final numbers set to come out on Thursday. Probably have a story come out on Friday because of just lagging uh, returns on those numbers. And then finally, just keep an eye out for any new polls. Uh, we've seen over the last couple of days, the race has gotten really Tight as uh, it nears the August second primary, so uh, keep an eye out for for new polling.
0: That's exactly right. We, we've seen uh, at least three candidates and in, in separate polls who who have been at the top spot. And there's kind of a jumbled mix of where the other candidates are in each of those polls. Uh, that's again, this is why the, the the money is really important. And if you see a new poll come out in the middle of early voting and the, and voters still have a chance to go out, you can clearly still change minds. I mean, again, we anticipate that there'll be more votes cast in early voting this year than in in previous elections. There's more sites open right now in Davidson County. So if you haven't gone already, there's there's more opportunity to do so. Uh, There's still a ton that can happen between now and the August 2nd. Primary.
1: And as always, if you're still making up your mind, feel free to go to the Tennessee and the USA Today Network's various property uh, websites and find information on these candidates. Uh, you can find the latest stories. We've got bios of everybody. We've got uh, summaries of where they stand on issues. Uh, we've got it all that that hopefully can help you decide who you're going to vote for in the primary.
0: We hope you've already made up your mind about Grand Divisions and that it's your favorite Tennessee politics podcast. If that's the case, you should rate us and review us on iTunes, or anywhere else that that you get your podcast. It helps us. The
1: Google juice, I
0: think. (laughs) That's what you call it. It helps us broaden our audience and get to, to new people.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.